0: Well, the first person to read, like, my original manuscript was the book agents. They read it twice and they were like, this is crazy, like, it can't be true, but there's so much detail in it, it could be true. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm driving back to my house out by the beach and and the cops start following me and I'm all sweaty and I have an ounce in the glove compartment and I have a twenty-two under the seat, so I'm I'm sitting in a jail sentence if they catch me. So they followed me and then the lights come on and the siren and I'm like, I'm nearly having a heart attack. And then they turned around and went back. The way they came, they must have got a call on the radio and I nearly had a heart attack. My heart was coming through my chest. So I pulled over and I smoked like five cigarettes and I was like, I'm not going to jail for killing this fool. And I decided I would go to Australia.
1: So today we're gonna spin an addiction to recovery yard, old school style, Uh, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now vibe. So gird your loins because this story is pretty fucking wild. The teller of said story is my friend, Richie Stevens. Richie is an Irish gangster turned actor, turned sober storyteller, best known for playing you guessed it, gangsters and hardened criminals in a long line of movies and television procedurals. Given his past as a drug trafficker, a kidnapper, a drug addict, an alcoholic, and basically just an all-around criminal himself, this is a bit of a real life Barry situation. It's a tale he lets loose in his wildly entertaining and darkly comic new book called The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety which chronicles his descent into the abyss and his slog to redemption. And also is currently being developed into a television series by the creators of the hit TV show, Silicon Valley, which is a- Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. Hell of a storyteller. This one is no holds barred and is coming right up, but first. with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So as many of you know, I've been sober for a bit. When you've been around, you tend to meet more than a few colorful characters. You have the privilege of seeing lives transformed. And Richie happens to be one of those guys. I've known him for about a decade, but even as someone who believes in transformation as I do, I could not have predicted the stunning, remarkable arc of this guy's life. Richie's somebody I admire for his commitment to service because this guy anonymously, he wouldn't even mention it in the podcast, but I will, helps so many people mostly some of the hardest, most discarded down on their luck folks you can possibly imagine. This conversation is wall to wall stories that will blow your hair back. And I think make you realize that if Richie could go from where he was to where he is today, that truly anything is possible. A little alert for the more squeamish, there's a fair amount of profanity in this episode, tales of violence throughout the conversation, so Maybe not ideal to play in the car with the kiddos in the back seat. And without warning, let's do the thing. This is me and Richie Stevens. I'm just super excited to talk to you. It's always cool when I get to have friends on the show and I was thinking back to when we first met and I can't remember the very first time, but it has to have been at least 10 years.
0: Maybe nine at least. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So you moved to you moved to L.A. in two thousand ten.
0: No, I think it was twenty thirteen.
1: Yeah. Oh, 2013. Okay. Yeah, 13. So yeah, maybe just under under ten years. And I just remember I have like a vague memory of you just telling insane stories, and and I was thinking, this is God, man, this this guy's full of shit.
0: There's no <laughs> way this stuff is real, you know. Well, the first person to read like my original manuscript was the book agents. Well, besides my partners, Uh the original one was like really long. It was like 105,000 words, 430 pages. And they read it twice and they were like, this is crazy. Like, it can't be true, but there's so much detail in it. It could be true. (laughs) And and then they were like, did this really happen? You know, Uh like, this is great. But uh, how do we sell this? Because it's just like... A crazy just long story. Just on and on and on, yeah, with like yeah. one
1: insane story after the next. So what was the decision to cut it down to be, you know, such a, a, a relatively small book?
0: Well, so we rewrote the book. Like my original book was just all my experiences written down. And then uh, I partnered up with John and Dave because mm-hmm. they want to make a TV show out of it. And um, they were like, it's not really accessible. So we need to like reformat it somehow. So it's relatable to people because most sure. people don't know who I am, so it's yeah. Like, Why do you care about this guy? You know. But um, so I got sober with the using the twelve steps by going to meetings, and uh, they were like, "Why don't we format it like uh, how you got sober through the twelve steps? And each chapter will be thematically written around a, a, a step."
1: Right. So, so each chapter is a step with your own kind of like spin on the subtitle for that step. The guys wrote a foreword and then the first chapter is you breezing through the whole story from like 10,000 feet. So you get a sense of just how crazy your life has been. And then each chapter takes you through the steps and uses stories from your past to illustrate how you work the step, which I thought was a really cool kind of narrative technique.
0: Yeah, exactly, and it's. I guess it's more relatable for people. Now, it's not too long, it's under 200 pages, yeah. so. yeah, Yeah,
1: it's a good yarn, dude, and nobody loves a good addiction recovery yarn more than this guy, yeah, so thanks, well man. done, my friend, and it's exciting that it's gonna be out in the world, and such an amazing arc given where you came from to where you are now, and I thought it would be cool to just format this conversation around what we know best, which is what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. We can kind of do it like a meeting, you know? So, okay. <laughs> take us back and like paint the crazy picture of growing up in this small town in
0: Ireland and how it kind of all went insane. Yeah, so I'm, you know, born and raised in Ireland. I came to America in my early twenties and. Where I'm from, it's like middle of nowhere, you know, countryside and uh, when I was a kid I was like, I was really shy and and quiet, you know, I didn't have a lot of self-confidence and, you know, um, where I grew up was like a tough place, you know, like, uh, if you compare it to America, like when I was growing up, men where I'm from don't drink cocktails. You know, men don't drink cocktails, men don't really use umbrellas, <laughs> like yeah. it rains a lot in Ireland and, and you might see like a doctor or, or a teacher maybe carrying an umbrella, but like it's pissing rain all the time, everybody's just standing out in it. and Yeah, I started smoking when I was like a teenager and uh, the cigarettes were a bit harsh on my on my throat, so I, I saw these menthols, so I started smoking menthols at the start, you know. And somebody saw me smoking menthols and they says, Are you fucking pregnant? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's the kind of spot it was right. when I was growing up.
1: So the town is called Cavan. How do you pronounce it?
0: Cavan? Cavan's the county. C-A-V-A-N, C-A-V-A. C-A-V-A. Right. Cavan.
1: And what's interesting about that, I actually like went to Google Maps and pulled down pictures because I wanted to get a visual sense of, of what that place was like. And not a lot going on. A lot of pictures of like a church. It's kind of it but you grew up close to the border of Northern Ireland. So you have this spillover of Protestants, right? So you have the Protestant Catholic kind of mm-hmm. tension that was going on that I'm sure kind of underscored, you know, just the whole vibe of growing up there.
0: Yeah, like, uh, so where I grew up, it's at the border. So the border of Northern Ireland, um, there was a lot of like, uh, I guess terrorists around there, you know, because it's at the border and, uh I'm Catholic, you know, I was raised Catholic, but my dad was a Protestant, mm-hmm. so I have a Protestant name. Like in Ireland, if you're a Catholic, you'll have a name like O'Reilly or McDonald or something like that. But if you're Protestant, you have like a British sounding name. So my name's Richie Stevens. So like I sound like I'm Protestant and then I was sent to like a Catholic school and uh, wasn't a whole lot of fun <laughs> as you yeah. could imagine. Like, like in Ireland, maybe when I was growing up, where I'm from, maybe 90% of people were Catholic. were Protestant. Well, my mother was like devout Catholic, Mm -hmm. so we were all sent to Catholic schools, but uh, I hated it, you know, it wasn't wasn't easy. Like, you know, um, a lot of people kind of romanticized the uh, IRA, you know, the terrorist group over there. You know, I I got dogs abused in the school because, you know...
1: (laughs) Right, even though you were in Catholic school and were raised Catholic, you have this Protestant last name. So, it puts like a target on your back. Exactly, yeah,
0: yeah. and I was, you know, I used to let myself get pushed around and I used to always worry about things. It was like, uh, I was very, very self-conscious all the time. Like like where I'm from, it's really important to play like football, Gaelic football. And uh, that's all really people care about in the area. So, it's like, if you go to a bar with your parents and you meet somebody, the first thing they'll say is, does this man play football? And it, you could be a fucking brain surgeon, and if you didn't play football, you were no good. Like, yeah. You know, so I played football, but I was no good at it. I had yeah. zero talent for it, no matter how hard I tried, but it's kind of like, if you didn't tog out, that's what they call it, like just show up, you were no good. Like, so I played football, but I was never any good at it. You know, every time I would play a game, if I get the ball... I'd be so self-conscious i wouldn't even know what to do like and i would just get nailed all the time by the other players and you know i tried to fit in as best as i could but what really did it for me was the drinking you know uh i started off i went to a concert one time like i was about 14 or 15 i went to this concert over on the west coast it was beastie boys garbage all these kind of bands and a girl on the bus on the way home gave me gave me a beer to see if I if, if I wanted a drink like and uh, I said okay I tried this drink and then I was like it was like wow it's like lights went on I didn't care what anybody thought about me I had zero fear about anything I was like this is like the special sauce that I want to drink all yeah, the yeah, time yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know
1: yeah I mean I really related to that sense of internal turmoil that you experienced as a young person, just feeling like out of place all the time, not comfortable in your own skin, that sense of self-consciousness and kind of free flowing anxiety. And what was interesting, what I didn't know was that you grew up like a pretty good kid. Like the book's called The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety, but it's not like you grew up in a notorious Irish crime family. Like no. you grew up with parents who cared for you and you know, your needs were met and you were kind of a shy, introverted kid. So all the insanity doesn't spawn from
0: no, like a completely no, dysfunctional family situation. Yeah, I can't blame that on anybody. Yeah. Like, you know, I have a brother and sister who are normal, like and As far as I know, like nobody in my family has ever been in trouble with the law before. So I'm like the black sheep. But it it was weird because some people can just have a few drinks and nothing happens. And then there's just certain people who just, the rule book goes Mm -hmm. out the window. And I was that kind of a person, you know, and that's how it affected me.
1: Right. And I would suspect like in the area in which you grew up, there wasn't a real appreciation for the disease of alcoholism, right? It's just like people drink, (laughs) that's what happens. Yeah, you get out of control once
0: in a while, but that ain't nothing but a thing. Yeah, like where I'm from, it's like a sign of masculinity to be able to drink a lot. You know, like where I'm from, they'll say, oh, that guy's a warrior for the drink, you know? So if you can't handle your drink, that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. But um, my definition of what an alcoholic was was somebody who's homeless, can't hold down a job, you know, maybe they're smelly, you know, like like that's what I thought an alcoholic actually was. So I had a problem with the sauce from very young, but I never really made the connection until I was a lot older, because I know now that I was like a a functional, quote unquote, (laughs) alcoholic, if you could call it. And very industrious. Yeah, And entrepreneurial. I, yeah, in my own head, I was keep, yeah, I was keeping <laughs> yeah. the show on the road. Like, yeah, yeah, but it did something for me that that uh, I didn't have beforehand. Mm-hmm. It was my solution. Yeah, to how I felt. So you have that
1: epiphany uh, on the bus ride coming back from the concert, having the drink because the pretty girl asked you to. You have this sense like, oh, this is the solution to the problem I didn't even know that I had. So where does it go from there? For me like just in reading the book and knowing you, it's pretty incremental. Like that's a very innocent kind of introduction to alcohol that probably is extremely common. Like a lot of people have their version of that. But that relationship to alcohol and what it meant to you at that time sets in motion a chain of events that just spiral crazy
0: out of control. Yeah, it didn't happen overnight, uh, the craziness. It was kind of, the problem was with me, there was no predicting how how it would end up? Like sometimes I could have a few scoops and uh, and and score with a woman and and go home and everything was fine. And then there's other times I would black out, wake up on the floor of someone's living room. You know, there was no predicting. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, but I didn't care. Like for for me, it was worth it mm-hmm. for the ease and comfort that I got out of it. It was really worth it. And like the way it works in Ireland, if you're, it's 18 to drink in a bar or a club, right? And uh, I was 15, maybe 14 or 15 when I started drinking. And I wanted to drink with the grown ups, like, I wanted to go to clubs and bars. But the problem was, you need an ID. Because I still look pretty young, I have a, like mm-hmm. a baby face, like. And um, so I decided to start making fake IDs. And first, I just made one for myself and a couple of my friends, and it was great. It worked. I could go to all the bars, and you know. All the other kids heard that I had a fake ID, so a few people asked me to make them and they said they'd pay me and that's how it started. I had this buddy, uh he was a year older than me in school. Uh we'll call him Walter for the <laughs> for the sake of the story.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, I was wondering if you anonymized all these. I people. had to, yeah, yeah. The lawyers
0: made me, you know. Well, some people are dangerous, you don't wanna <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, it's him But, but, uh, so yeah, Walter, uh, he came up with the idea. He said, "Why don't you like, make the ideas and I'll sell them, and we'll have a business, and we can make a bunch of money." And, and uh, I said, "Okay." And. Mm-hmm. First, I started making IDs for all the people in my school. And then I was making them for people in other schools who I never met before. Uh-huh. I had like, What a,
1: were you charging for an ID? It was
0: really cheap, yeah. it was like five bucks. Should like, you should charge more. Yeah, I know, but I, <laughs> I, 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 was a, I was only doing it for some drinking money. I wasn't trying to become right. a kingpin or something like that. But uh, yeah, uh, it just got out of control and, but it was great because like, I would go everywhere around the country. Yeah, it was going You go from being
1: this kind of quiet kid to suddenly being the guy that is in high demand.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was it it, it was fun and, and I had all this, like I was broke so I, I got all this drinking money from it and uh, I could go to different bars and clubs and people would, like I'd already shown them my ID before mm-hmm. so they knew my name and what I drank and all this kind of stuff. It was, and I was just a kid.
1: Right, like, what's b- great though is that you get busted for this racket, right, and uh You get charged with like a offense of the state or something like that because of the official seal or something like that, that you figured out how to create uh, in a unique way that like freaked out the authorities. Well, basically
0: the way IDs worked in Ireland back then, you get what's a police ID or in Ireland it's called the Garda. So you have a guard ID. So I was copying the guard ID because it was an official official ID. But back then it was like, it was easy to make one. It was kind of like, it was like, a card, a blue card, and then typewriter would have your name and your date of birth, and then in the back there was a stamp. It was like a police stamp and I, I was able to forge the stamp <laughs> in order, you know, <laughs> right. that, was, that was tricky enough. And uh-huh. But what happened was Walter got caught and uh, he rolled over on me. And, you know, I found out about it. I was out of the house one day and I came home and, and my mother says, the police were looking for you. I was like, "Fuck! What happened?" <laughs> she goes, "That friend of yours fucking told the police you were making the IDs. So I was like, <laughs> "Oh god!" Like, so I had to go in and like talk to the police, make you know, have a, an interview, and it was nerve wracking. You know, they thought I had either stolen a stamp from the police station or maybe there was some kind of a mole or something. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't know how I was doing it, so I had to go in and explain to them that. The way I make these is I just make the stamp on my computer. I print it onto like an old photograph, you know, like a a glossy photograph. Mm -hmm. Like an inkjet printer, if you print onto a photograph, and if it's glossy, it'll stay wet. Yeah, it doesn't dry. Yeah, so basically I would print it onto an old photo and then stamp it onto the card. And then it looks like a stamp. But you had to print it in reverse, right? Yeah, I had to print it in reverse because yeah, yeah. if you do that, it comes up backwards, right? <laughs> so eventually <laughs> I figured this shit out and I was trying to explain it to the cops and I was like a 15, 16-year-old kid and they're they listening. They're like, Jesus, huh? Jesus. You know, because <laughs> they must have thought I was some kind of a criminal genius. Right. But right. I, yeah, they were like, these are very serious charges because that's like what they charge terrorists with because mm-hmm. terrorists in Ireland, they make fake documents and stuff like that. And... And my friend Walter, uh, his family were uh, known to be terrorists as mm. well. So the fact that I was working with him was kind of, uh, well, they wanted to get to the bottom of it. And in the end, I just pretended I only met a couple of them. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I only met a couple from my friends. I won't do it again. And I hadn't been in trouble before, so they right. let me away with it. And I right, got away. so a couple observations on that. First of all, this
1: is your first brush with the law. And also, you know, the first kind of like true resentment with a friend, because this guy, Walter, sold you out, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's where, you know, the anger kind of enters the picture, right? And anger plays a, a much bigger role as you, you know, walk this path. But I'm curious about like where you think, like, what is the genesis of that anger? Like you would have these crazy outbursts and you get in all these fights later on and stuff like that like what is that about and how have you kind of made peace with
0: that or resolved it? Well, I think originally because I used to get pushed around in school, like because my old man was a Protestant, like so in Ireland where I'm from, like a derogatory thing that they'll say to somebody who's Protestant, they'll say, you're a black cunt, you know, not black as in the color mm-hmm. of your skin, but back in the old days, like in the 19 teens or, or whatever, after World War One with these uh, British soldier group called Tam. the Black and Tans. And they came to Ireland and they, they massacred a bunch of people and stuff like that. So when they're calling you black, they're calling you one of those Black and Tans. Mm-hmm. Like So I was pushed around at school uh, because of that kind of stuff. So I think when I was little and I had no confidence or no courage, uh, you know, that affected me. And then after I started drinking and I had this psychological change made me a different person, then I was like determined not to take any shit from anybody because of how I had been treated when I was younger, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think I probably had a little bit of a, it. took a, It took a while for that to grow, you know? Like uh, even when I first started drinking, I don't know what it's like now, but when I was growing up back home, Ireland was like violent, you know? Not a lot of people getting murdered, but when you go out drinking, Everybody used to drink a lot. And then at the end of the night, we would go to these fast food restaurants. They call them chippers back home because they sell fries, like yeah. fish and chips, you know? And uh, after the night of drinking, everybody goes to the chipper and that's when you would see the fights, you know? because It's you have... like
1: sports, like a spectator sport though. Oh,
0: absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I used to sit in the chipper and watch these fucking boys uh throwing each other, beating each other it was it was mayhem Mm -hmm. and when i was like when i first came to america i was only 160 pounds i was light you know so back then i was like a skinny light kid but i'm like taking all this shit in and it was really exciting it was like an action movie in front of you yeah you know and and it, it was funny sometimes it was like um sometimes it would be over nothing like like say you're in the chipper and and there's a guy there with his woman and and a drunk guy like gives her the eye, he could get knocked out for that, you know, or spill some chips on somebody. You'd see see them flying over tables.
1: It reminds me of that scene in uh, The Gentleman. You see that movie where Colin Farrell beats the shit out of a bunch of kids in in, in a chipper. You know, that idea.
0: Yeah, that could happen anytime. But when I first started going out, I used to work at a gas station. Back in the day, there was people called gas station attendants who would come and fill your gas for you. Like now yeah. everybody just, uh, everybody fills their own gas. But that was my first job. I was like 15 or 16 and I was working with these older boys. And one of them, I, sh- I probably shouldn't say his name, but his nickname is Tits because uh, he he had man boobs, you know. But uh, Tits used to bring me out and, and uh, I used to look up to him, you know. He was one of these guys, when I first met him, he had been arrested like 30 times just for like fighting or stupid drunk shit and, and he never went to jail because when I was growing up there was like there was no real penalties for that like mm. like in California I couldn't believe when I got here there's not a whole lot of fights because if you like just put your hand on someone or spit on them you're going to jail mm-hmm. but back home you could kick the shit out of someone and maybe if the cops got you you might have to go to court and pay a couple of hundred dollars fine that's all it was there was like a boys will be boys Mentality to the law. I don't. Is know what, it still
1: like that there?
0: I don't know. It, it, yeah. it might not be. But when I was growing up, that's how it was. Right. And, and I used to hang out with tits, and he'd bring me out, and and you know, he 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 was kind of a role model for me. Yeah. You know.
1: What is the truth or the lived experience of growing up around the IRA? Because you know, my relationship to that is just what I've read in books or
0: seen in movies. Well, you know what? I'll tell you. I'll tell you the main thing that Hollywood never gets right about the IRA. Like, whenever you see the movies or anything like that about the IRA, they make it out like it's this really fucking secret thing where these guys come out of nowhere and nobody knows who they are. But in real life, you know exactly who's in the IRA because mm-hmm. in Ireland, like, it's a small country. Everybody knows everybody. So if your neighbor is in the ira you know like if their kid is on the team with you everybody knows because they have marches and shit and you see them at the marches or they might come to the bar to collect money for whatever the prisoners or whatever the fuck they're collecting money for so in real life everybody knows exactly who's in the ira so there's there's no secret you know but still and you just sort
1: of tiptoe around it and tread lightly
0: it depends. I have a load of friends who are in it and uh-huh. whose families are in it, you know? It, the way it is as well, it's like a volunteer sort of a thing. So they're called volunteers. So right. some people join up for a while and then they go away again and that's how it is. Like, right. You know, but I always ended up with being friends with a bunch of their kids because there were a lot of them were kind of wild like I was, uh-huh. you know?
1: Yeah, wow. So the drinking starts to escalate. Hash enters the picture. At some point you start kind of selling... Dealing a little bit, like walk me through that next. Phase. It was the exact
0: same shit as the drinking. With the drinking, I started selling IDs to fund my drinking, and then with the hash, like I started smoking hash when I was maybe sixteen or seventeen too, and because it, it was, I knew it couldn't kill you, and and it looked cool, you know, and I had seen it on TV and movies and stuff like that, and so I wanted to try it, and I met these guys one night in Calvin, um can't really use their names. Let's call them. <laughs> <laughs> this guy has a really obvious name. We'll call him Pigeon, right? All
1: right, there so you go. I met
0: Pigeon and his buddy one night. He goes, You want to buy some hash? Hi. They have all this funny way of talking. You think my way is funny. Uh-huh. They have all this weird lingo, like where I'm from. They say, Hi, Sham, or Hi, Sobla. He'd say, Hi, Sham. You want to buy some hash? Hi. They say hi about everything. It's weird. So I says, yeah, how much is it? He goes, I'll give you a five spot. It was five pounds at the time. Now we have euros, but back then we mm-hmm. have pounds. So he like saw me this little ball of hash and it was in a matchbox. And uh, he said, do you know how to smoke it? I said, uh, no. And he he rolled me a joint and we smoked it together. And it was like it was like discovering alcohol all over again, except not so crazy. It was more chilled, like there was no... You wouldn't fall down on hash, really. You probably couldn't crash a car on it, mm-hmm. you know. But but uh, I, I once I discovered the hash too, it was something that I I wanted to do all the time, even though I knew it was illegal. I had to be careful not to get caught. But uh, yeah, I started to sell it to fund my my use of it.
1: Yeah, and what's going on at home at this time? Like, what's mom? Oh, aware I kept of it quiet right?
0: from from the parents, you know, like. Uh, I led a double life, really, with my folks and even with my wife and everything down through the years. I would do a lot of secret shit. You know, I would stay over with friends and, you know, sometimes I would come home and my poor mother would be like sitting in the kitchen at four o'clock in the morning waiting for me and I'd walk in the door drunk and, you know, I felt bad about it, but I still felt like it was worth it Mm. at the time.
1: Well, it's also that thing where you think you're getting away with this, that double life that they're not aware of what you're doing, but it's pretty transparent.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it is what it is. Like, uh, yeah, I put, I put my poor parents through a lot, like, you know, because later when I got into trouble, everybody around knows everybody and stuff like that. So when I got into trouble later, I got caught dealing, uh, everybody knew. Right,
1: I mean, how are they now? What do they think about this book and this potential (laughs) TV show and all of that? It Uh, must be a mind blower. Well, uh, have you you probably haven't been have you been back home at all? Yeah,
0: I've been home a lot of times. Mm. Um, Yeah, uh, I'm sure they don't like this stuff being brought up, but it is what it is. It's a a positive story. I I turned my life around. It's not like I'm still doing this kind of stuff. You know. Yeah,
1: but just the idea that like there's a book out there and you're kind of being feted,
0: celebrated. Yeah, well, you know, my mother like said to me, she goes, she goes, Jesus Christ, you're not worried about people knowing what you did. Uh-huh. And I'm like, if I gave a fuck, I wouldn't have wrote it in a book. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry you feel that way, but um, that's only natural, I suppose. But that's that shame thing, right? That mm. kind of emanates out of Catholicism.
1: Like, yeah. We keep our weaknesses private.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, I was super into the Catholicism. Like, mm. um, even though i didn't like being forced to go to church every week. I was an altar boy at the at the church and and uh and that shit used to make me nervous as well because you got to sit up in front of everybody at the front of the church and you know if you're an altar boy, you have to like ring the bell at certain times during the thing, and I would always be so nervous about that shit as well i'd either miss the fucking time I was supposed to do it or ring it too early or It was fucking mortifying, you know, (laughs) same shit with the water and the wine. You bring over the water and the wine to the priest at a certain time. I was always fucking that up, you know?
1: Well, when you get sober though, and you're kind of confronted with the idea of embracing a higher power, Catholicism didn't exactly, you know, strike you as a good option at the time. No, by the time I got sober. Like there's a soured relationship. Well,
0: just God in general. When I got sober, I was a complete atheist. I didn't believe there could be a God. The way I saw it was God is like something that people believe in when they're children, like Santa Claus, you know, and all these bad things had happened to me and uh, I just didn't believe that there could be a God, you know, and that's that's the way I felt um, before I got sober, Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, so let's
1: pick the story back up like you're starting to deal a little bit. you end up going to college you're you kind of put the foot on the gas on the dealing ecstasy enters the picture like let's you know it, it, this this hurricane is starting to pick up speed
0: yeah, so I got to college and by the time I got to college i was um I was a regular hash smoker and a regular drinker and uh you know, I wasn't afraid to fight or I wasn't afraid to score with the women. And I was just, I was dealing a little bit of hash. And then I met my friend Tomo. So Tomo kind of changed everything. Yeah. I was introduced to him by my friend Ferret. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was he was called Ferret because he talks really fast. He sounds like a Ferret. But uh, yeah, so Ferret introduced me to Tomo. And he was a real character. He was always talking about where he's from apparently he used to deal a lot of ecstasy people talk a lot of shit so I was always I was always skeptical you know and uh, we used to hang out with Tomo he'd be telling us about these tall tales about how he was dealing ecstasy in his hometown and all this mm-hmm. kind of shit and one night uh, we were all drinking around Halloween we are over at my place we were drinking a load of beer and smoking hash and we decided to go for a walk around the neighborhood and there was a uh, there was a house party going on. So we walked up to the house party, it was like four or five of us. It was me, Ferret, Pat the Rat, and, uh, and Tomo. He was called Pat the Rat because he kind of looks like a rat. Uh-huh. He, he wasn't, wasn't a snitch. Also <laughs>
1: lots of Pats, right? So yeah, every
0: Pat had to have like an appendage. Yeah, if you're name. Irish, you'll know yeah. a lot of Pats, a lot of PJs, all that. So, so a lot of boys that I knock around would have nicknames. So we saw this house party going on, and we walked up and we, we rang the doorbell some dude answered the door, and we're like, oh, can we come into your party? And they were like, uh, no, no, we don't know you, you can't come in. So I like, fuck. And then uh, they closed the door on us, went back to the house, and we were drinking again. We are like, fuck those pricks, wouldn't let us into the party. Like. And Tomo had like a bottle of wine there, and he goes, he goes, smush. You dare me to come back and put this through the fucking window? <laughs> we were, we were, we. Were like, oh, Tom was full of shit. He's never going to do that. And uh, we were like, yeah, we dare you, do it. So we walked back round the block again, and Tomo got the fucking wine bottle and just fucked it through the window, S- like straight through the window of the fucking house. Like we were like, wow, Tom was fucking crazy. He actually did it. Like we all ran away, like you know. And then after that, I was like, wow, Tomo's the real deal. This guy isn't a bullshitter or anything, you know? And then, so, me and Tomo were out one night. There's a bar called the LA, Leinster Arms. We were in the Leinster Arms, and I knew Tomo did ecstasy, but I was afraid to do ecstasy because I thought, you know, in the news, you read these stories about how people took ecstasy one time and they fucking died, like... And then, I, w- I always thought, like, I'm kind of unlucky, so it, that would probably be me if I took the ecstasy one time. So, Tits used to do it, my old friend from Cavan, but I used to hang out with him while he was on ecstasy, but but uh, I was always scared to do it, because mm-hmm. I thought I would be that un- unlucky person that it kills. And then one night, we were out in the LA, me and Tomo, and he goes, "Mush, do you want to try one of these ecstasy? And I was like... Uh, well, I don't know, I, I fucking, I'm afraid it might kill me, you know. He goes, Mosh, these are light ones. They're really light, they're not strong. You'll be grand. So he handed me this beige pill with 007 on it. And I saw this pill and, uh, he, and he goes, go on, take one the fuck. Go into the bathroom, take it. So I went into the bathroom I was really scared. It had this fucking 007 pill in my hand. And I was thinking, hmm, Tom was smart. And if they haven't killed him, maybe I'd be okay with it, uh-huh. you know? So I said, fuck it. Half wouldn't kill somebody. A quarter definitely wouldn't. So I broke it in half, and then I broke it in half again. And I took a quarter, <laughs> and I put the other three quarters back into my pocket. And I came back outside, and Tomo goes, did you take it? And I was like, "Yep." Yeah. He goes, all right, let me know when you're coming up. And then coming up means it's starting to take effect. Mm-hmm. So maybe half hour later or three quarters of an hour later, I'm not feeling anything. Thomas says, are you coming up yet? Yeah? I was like, oh, uh, no. He goes, did you take it all? I was like, Uh, I only took a half. And he goes, Mosh, take a whole one. These are really light. You got to take a whole one. So I went back in, took another quarter. Went back in, took another quarter and then uh, eventually it started coming up and ecstasy was like nothing I had ever tried before. It was... It's called ecstasy for that reason. It mm-hmm. actually feels like ecstasy. I came out and I, and I was like, I loved everybody in the fucking place. You know, I had no bad feelings. It was overwhelming. like, And I was just thinking, fuck, why doesn't everybody on earth take these all the time? You know, I was yeah. thinking there would be no wars or anything. This is fucking great. <laughs> and and that that night I ended up Uh, like I would be all sweaty and my jaw would be hanging and my foot would be tapping and music sounded good. And and I ended up taking two on my first night. And it was kind of (laughs) like, it was like discovering alcohol all over again, except Uh 100 times better. And I loved it. And then ecstasy costs money as well. (laughs) So there was the financial problem of paying for the ecstasy. And I was the first one out of my friends to start taking it and then Pat the Rat started taking it and other boys as well. And So I was sort of friendly, right? Mm-hmm. Tomo was kind of quiet and antisocial, so not a lot of people knew him. So I was kind of like all my friends started taking them after me and we were all doing them together. A lot of people were telling me to, to get pills off them from Tomo. And, uh, so I was ending, ending up getting 10 or 15 a night for everybody and just, just getting them as a favor. And Thomas says to me, he goes, "Mush, why don't you take 100 of these and you can sell some of them and then you get a bunch of money and you get do your own for free. And uh, I was like, oh, no, no, that's dealing. That's serious. If the cops catch you dealing, it wouldn't be like the IDs. I'd fucking go to jail for that shit for years. Like, and he goes, "Mush, you're already dealing them. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm getting them as favours. And he says, "Mush, if the cops catch you, the charge is for sale or supply You're supplying them, so you're already dealing them for free. Mm -hmm. I was like, fuck, he's right. Might as well get it Yeah, I was like, fuck, I'm already dealing them for free. You might as well. And it made sense, and Tomo was smart, so I was like, okay. And then I, I just by default, just like that, I became an ecstasy dealer because I ended up getting them from my friends. And then Tomo started like training me how to do it. Like, it's, you know... Say if you're a parent out there and and, uh, you're wondering how does your kid get involved in drugs, like someone has to show them, Mm -hmm. you know, at least the ins and outs of how to do it. I get like bags of a hundred and uh, he like, you know, he'd he'd tell me how much to charge and not to give people credit and, you know, all the ins and outs of it, how to watch out for the cops, all this kind of stuff. And just like that, it just seemed to happen in a short period of time, I was supplying the whole college with, Mm. you know?
1: Yeah, all of your dealing over the years though, through San Francisco, seems to be purely motivated on your part, just to have a little extra cash and to be able to have an infinite supply for yourself, right? i mean yeah. you weren 't trying to be some kind of gangster kingpin in terms of dealing. you just wanted to make sure that you always had access
0: to the drugs that you wanted pretty much especially at the beginning, but then later i started it started to get way more serious in terms of like you know doing bigger things and and uh, but at the beginning that 's all it was you know um, but the problem was so at the beginning ecstasy was great there wasn 't even much of a come down you 'd be awake all night and the come down wasn't too bad at the beginning, but what happens when you're doing ecstasy? Probably the same as everything. The more of it you do, the more of it you need to do. So, mm-hmm. like one or two pills used to do me for a night at the beginning, and then later I wouldn't even come up unless I double dropped. Like, like and in Ireland they were cheap. Like back then they were about ten pounds a piece for one pill, and I was getting them for three or four pounds a piece in bulk. So when they're cheaply available and, and when they're not working as good, you end, just, end up just taking yeah. more and more and more. You know, and, and uh and that's what happened to me. The tolerance went up and But then the come down you get the that come down got worse too. That, yeah, yeah. The highs were very, very high and the lows were really, really low. And uh you know, I I started dating this girl. Uh, uh, we'll call her Tabitha. And I was madly in love with her. Like before, I started doing ecstasy. I I don't think I could even experience the emotion of love. I was like really really closed off and stuff like that. But when I started doing ecstasy, I was like, you know, I uh, I think it it did something to my personality that wasn't there before. And uh, and I was madly in love with this chick. And we we were we were uh, going out for a while and. She would always end up getting me into fights with people. I remember one time uh, I was staying at her house one night. Her bedroom was on the second floor. And uh, I was sound asleep in bed. I'd say it was about one o'clock in the morning. And I wake up and she's screaming, Richie, Richie, Richie. I fucking wake up, right? Right. And the window was right beside the bed. Mm-hmm. And it's up on the second floor. There was a fucking man at the window. And she was screaming, Reggie, Reggie. I was like, this guy was trying to get into the house. And it was a wooden window that opens out. I'm telling you, I opened the window and I beat the fucking shit out of him with the window. I, I beat the crap out of him with the window. And he didn't fall off the roof, but he got down and ran away. And then I, I woke up and I, and I saw... Uh, Tabitha and she had her boobs out, like you know. And then I kinda realized she must have been flashing the dude outside the window while I was asleep, and the guy fucking climbed up on the roof to try and get into bed with her, <laughs> and I get woken up and I'm beating this guy with a fucking window. You know? Second floor. I mean, if he had yeah. fallen and cracked his head. Yeah. And then the next day now this would only happen in Ireland, this would never happen in America. The next day I'm sitting in the living room with her and her roommate, and the doorbell rings, and it's the guy from last night. And uh, I looked out the window and I saw him and his, the poor guy, I gave him a bad old beating with the window. Like I probably hit him about 20 times where his face was all swollen and cut. But I thought he was coming back to to get me. So I, I grabbed the poker out of the fireplace and, and came out like, and but she answered the door. But the guy just came to apologize. I guess he sobered up and realized what <laughs> happened. This would only happen in, in oh Ireland. Like, the guy came to Can you apologize. Imagine in LA? That would never happen in America, you know. you know, but the dude had come back to apologize and she answered the door and she saw his face and I'm behind her with the poker. I was going to fight him with the poker because I didn't know what was happening. And she was trying to invite him in for a cup of tea because she felt bad. And all he wanted to do was apologize and hope that she wasn't gonna call the police, you know. Well,
1: now I know why John and Dave wanna make a TV show out of this, (laughs) because the thing about the book and these stories as, as sort of, you know, horrid and awful as as some of this stuff is, like there's this undercurrent of hilarity. Like there's there's a lot of comic relief in oh, all yeah, of this. Yeah, you I have mean,
0: to have a dark without making you...
1: excuses for your violent behavior, and
0: obviously people were hurt and
1: all of that. Like, just I'm imagining in my mind like what that
0: must have looked like. Like. It's very cinematic. Yeah, I don't think that one even made it into the book. But, but uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: no, I didn't. Yeah, but but uh, <laughs> but I think the thing too, like to go back to something you said a few minutes ago, you said that you couldn't access that feeling of love until you took ecstasy, and I think it's an important point to make that you make in the book, which is like these things work, man, and when you're an addict or an alcoholic, something does get unlocked. Like it is serving a purpose, mm-hmm. and I think in terms of Um, talking openly about the nature of addiction and recovery, it's important to acknowledge like that fact, like they serve a purpose. And in recovery, when you look back and kind of regale in these stories to acknowledge like I needed that and actually it did something for me and it worked until obviously it stopped working and then it became very dark and terrible. But there is that, piece there that it's important to be honest about that
0: yeah i'll be real about everything you know uh obviously it's, it's some of the stuff is very embarrassing but like if you can't be honest like what's the point you mm-hmm. know that's the way i see it but basically anyway i was madly in love with this girl and we ended up breaking up and I, I was i was i was pretty pretty down about it and by that stage i was probably doing ecstasy three or four times a week uh, I was averaging fifteen or twenty pills in a night, so I was like all over the place the head wasn 't working right and uh, and you know I was feeling really down. It was around the time of nine eleven and uh, and i remember i I remember one day I decided to get two bottles of jack daniels i uh, I was just kind of drowning in my sorrows, you know, so I brought them to the house and i was like i was uh drinking these uh bottles of j d and I got more and more depressed and I said, fuck it, I'll just kill myself, you know. And, and uh, I, I had a hundred ecstasy. I started with a handful of five. So I started just drinking and swallowing the ecstasy, started putting out cigarettes on my arm. I still have mm-hmm. these scars on my arm from where I was doing that and got a knife and started cutting my hand. It was like, I, I barely even remember it, but what happened was I took about 30 pills and uh, one of my roommates, this guy called uh, Travis, we'll call him, uh, Travis, Travis hid the rest of my pills and saved my life. Like, and uh, I was like shitting myself and, and uh, I blacked out. Nobody brought me to the hospital, would you believe? Yeah. And, uh, but I survived, like, you know, it was crazy. That was like my first suicide attempt. I'd say I was about 19 years old. But uh, yeah, like down through the years, I'd say I probably before I got sober, like I'd say I probably I lost count of the number of times I tried to kill myself, mm-hmm. and like that one was pretty pathetic. But some of them were kind of funny if you mm-hmm. have a da- dark sense of humor. Like uh, I remember one time around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, I had a life insurance policy, right, in case something happened to me, the, the misses and the kids mm-hmm. would be okay, you know. And I used I used to uh, used to party with my life insurance agent this guy called Chris and uh, anyway I was, I was on the tear drinking loads and doing loads of drugs and, and I decided fuck it I'll just kill myself but I was like oh what if if I kill myself will that nullify the fucking policy for, for the life insurance <laughs> so uh, so yeah. I, I'm outside my house uh, smoking cigarettes like planning my death and uh, I ring up Chris he's like hey Richie what's going on I was like hey Chris if I kill myself does that nullify the policy <laughs> And he says, he says, yeah, you fucking idiot. It's fucking suicide. i was like, shit, I don't want to fucking leave my fucking kids penniless. And and you know what he said to me that just snapped me out of it that night? He said, uh, he said, Richie, you're like a fucking fat kid who's crying because he can't eat his fucking cake. That's what he said to me. Mm. And for some reason that just snapped me out of it. It was weird. I had had loads of incidents like that. Like another time... I'd say it was maybe around 2007, 2008. I used to be a carpenter. When I came to America, I I learned how to be a carpenter. I was I was a drug dealer, but also a carpenter. Mm-hmm. And uh this buddy of mine, Dav, he uh he he had a side job for me to do on the weekends. He says he's he calls me Fetch. So he says, Hey Fetch, do you want to do a side job at the weekend? I says, Yeah, what is it? He says, It's at a fortune tellers up in Laguna Honda. You have to you have to like she wants to build a couple of walls or some shit. I was like, okay. But uh, the night before, I was on like a really bad bender, so I was, I was dying while I was working. And I was thinking about killing myself while I was working at this fortune teller. You know, she was very nice. I was working away. I was putting down my plates, nailing them with a nail gun. And, and she's watching me while I'm working. And, and, uh, and I'm thinking, you know what? When I'm done here, I'll go to the fucking bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge because uh, a lot of people kill themselves on the mm-hmm. Golden Gate Bridge so I'm, I'm nailing my plates and I'm thinking uh, I'll go to the bridge when I'm done and, uh, and then I was thinking fuck you know there's a net around the Golden Gate Bridge so if you jump in the wrong place you'll end up in the net mm-hmm. so I was thinking fuck knowing my luck I'd probably end up in the fucking net <laughs> you know <laughs> and, uh, and I'm nailing my studs and, and she's watching me and then I'm thinking you know what I'll just go down there to the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge and I'll blow my brains out Nobody ever kills themselves with a gun on the Golden Gate mm-hmm. Bridge. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I'll do that, you know. And it, this is while I'm working, I'm debating with myself how I'm going to kill myself. And the fortune teller is watching me. And she she looks at me and she goes, oh my God, you have a wonderful aura. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I was, I just, it was so ridiculous. I laughed out loud. I was thinking, you fucking fraud. I didn't say anything to her, but the ridiculousness of what she said to me snapped me out of it for that day. Mm. It was so, so bizarre. Like I had so many of those moments. Yeah, little,
1: like, uh, little interventions yeah. you weren't even aware of. But amongst all of these efforts to end your life, did it ever enter your mind? Like maybe I should get off the drugs and alcohol. Like a normal person who's listening to this, like I, I understand where you're coming from, but a normal person is thinking,
0: dude, It's the drugs and the alcohol, man. Just quit that shit. Well, you know, I knew I had a problem with the drugs and alcohol, but I didn't put two and two together about the depression being linked to the drugs and alcohol. Like, as I said, growing up, I had no idea of what alcoholism really is, you know. I just basically thought it was someone who couldn't handle their shit. I didn't realize that part of it is it can make a person so depressed that they want to end their life, you know, so I thought there were two separate issues, mm-hmm. you know, so I, uh, until I got sober and I, I, I found out, oh, that's part of the deal, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, uh, depression is part of the deal. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, like it crossed my mind. Um, but I, when I was younger, I, like in my early twenties, I was like, this is what people do in their twenties, right? Uh, and I, I kind of thought, maybe I'll quit sometime in the future. Mm-hmm. Maybe like when I'm 30, you know, if I live that long. That's right. kind of what I thought. And what those what,
1: goalposts keep moving. Exactly.
0: Up. Yeah. I move the goal posts every time. And the funny thing was a lot of times after a really bad bender, I'd be fucked for a day or two after it. And then during that day or two I would kinda think, Maybe I need to quit this shit, okay? Or maybe if I pissed off the wife or if I did something or uh maybe went missing or whatever I was doing, uh, I would make promises to her as well, like, you know, because I wasn't fucking behaving like husband of the year or anything Mm -hmm. like that, you know. So, And at times, I would really mean it. I'd be like, okay, I'm never drinking again, never doing coke again. And then after I would feel better, after whatever week, once i start to recover, I thought my mind was changing. Mm -hmm. For a lot of years, I thought I changed my mind. I wanted to quit last week, but I don't want to quit this week. And then my mind would change. And I thought that was me changing my mind for a lot lot of years, I thought that was me that was changing my mind each time. But then eventually, after a lot of years, I was 28 when I got sober, eventually it became obvious to me that it wasn't me that was changing my mind. It was something else that I was fucking powerless over. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you have a problem with the booze and the drugs, it's a very sneaky fucking mental condition because it'll tell you, you don't have the problem, Mm -hmm. you know? And I used to hang around with a lot of dudes who like in my perception were worse than I was because I could look at Eric or whoever I'm hanging out with and, and go, I'm not as bad as Eric, look at him, <laughs> you yeah. know? But it's a defense mechanism. Sure, it's a wise strategy
1: though. Yeah, so that you it, don't really have to own your own shit. Yeah,
0: but it happens even, it, it happens beyond your own consciousness. Yeah. It fucking works in the background, it's weird. Yeah. You know?
1: Um, You mentioned uh, Travis and Tomo. I want to talk about the kidnapping.
0: (laughs) This is where shit gets serious. Oh God. So after a couple of years of uh, working with Tomo, working for Tomo, um, I could never seem to get ahead. I was always, always ended up owing him more money. He'd give me a hundred pills, and I would end up either taking most of them myself or giving them away and not being able to collect the money. And, and he, he, you know, he was throwing good money after bad. He would uh-huh. keep giving me more chances, giving yeah, me this more. This guy pills. seems
1: incredibly patient given yeah, the fact was, that you were fairness. a terrible drug dealer. In fairness, yeah, yeah. he <laughs> was.
0: You know? But uh, so I was my own best customer. That was the problem. So I never got rich or anything like that. I was, that was a disaster. And so I ended up owing him a lot of money. And this guy Travis that I used to live with, we were only 19 or 20 at the time, we were only kids still, but this guy was in his 30s. He was a good dude, he was kind of a hippie, you know, Uh, he was from down south in Cork, and like a nice fella, wore glasses, you know, harmless, right? And uh, Tomo was a wholesaler, I was like a street dealer at that time, and Tomo was a wholesaler, so he he would be giving large amounts of drugs to different people. And this guy Travis, he got a few kilos of hash on credit. So in Ireland we say on tick, that means basically on credit. So he gets the couple of kilos and then just disappears, just stopped answering his phone with no intention of paying it back. <laughs> you know. He, like, he wasn't telling Tomo to fuck off. He was mm-hmm. just saying just just ignoring him. And then so Tomo had got that on credit from his supplier. We had a bigger supplier we used to go to down in a place called Navin. We called this boy Smiling Pat, because mm-hmm. he was always smiling, but he was he was really dangerous. Um, anyway, Tomo's supplier, Pat, was getting impatient for the money. He's ringing up Tomo and putting power tools on the phone, like saws and shit like that and saying, this is what you're going to get if you don't pay that fucking money for, for what you owe. So I owe money to Tomo, Travis owes money to Tomo, and Tomo owes money to Pat. So that's where the dilemma started and at the time Tomo had this roommate uh, up in Dublin, this guy called Mick, he was a British guy. Mick was like a, a shitbag. He he uh he borrowed a load of coke off a bunch of different gangsters up in Dublin and they were shooting at Tomo in the street and everything like that. They tried to kill him over that like so I was like, Tomo told me, I was like, what kind of a gun was it, you know? He goes, "Mush, I didn't stop to look at it. They were firing shots at me in the fucking street, you know? Uh, so we're all in a lot of trouble, right? But I'm trying to pay Tomo back. I'm his friend. So he's not really mad at me, but he's getting upset. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the word is that Travis's parents have money. So Tomo says, okay, Mush, if you help us kidnap Travis, I'll write off your death. And we'll get his parents to pay the money that he owes. So I'm like, fuck, that's, that's really serious shit. I, and Travis had saved my life before. He wasn't a bad dude, mm-hmm. even though he, he owed the money. So I was like, if you guys are going to kill him, I'm not fucking helping you with that. He doesn't deserve to die, you know? So uh, he goes, no, much, sh- swear to God, we won't kill him. And <laughs> Thomas was actually Catholic enough. Like, he, if he swears to God, you believe him, mm. you know? I did anyway. So Tomo lived in Dublin and I lived in outside Dublin in a different town. And Travis lived in my town. And he goes, "Mush, as soon as you see him, fucking call me. I'll be down with the boys from Dublin. We'll take him to a safe house and make his parents pay the money. So my job was to like find him and let the boys know. So uh, one day I'm down in this bar called The Roost. It's like a, a busy fucking crowded place with like a DJ, you know. Uh, kind of a college bar uh, so I'm down in the roost one night and I see Tra- I see Travis and I, I message Tomo. and uh, I said he's here in the roost and uh, Tomo rings me he goes Mosh stay on him we'll be down from Dublin stay on him don't fucking lose him let me know if he moves right so I'm watching him and then eventually he, he moves to go to another bar there's one up the street called Caulfields it's like an old man's pub like quiet fucking there might be five people there mm-hmm. dead like so I follow him up to Caulfields, and I'm waiting there with Tomo. He's just having a pint of Guinness by himself, just fucking enjoying himself. The place is empty and quiet. like. And uh, next thing, Tomo arrives. He had a separate crew of boys from Dublin. Like There was me and the other boys we hung around with who were young lads, but he, Tomo was like my age. He was only 19 or 20, but he had these older ex-cons who like followed him round up in Dublin and like he had a separate crew of boys from Dublin who were like really dangerous fellas, you know, like ex-cons, you know. They were probably in their 30s, I'd say, by that point. But uh, in he walks with the boys, uh, with his crew from Dublin, and I'm standing there watching, and Travis just looks up and he sees the boys fucking in front of his table. And he looks at him and he goes, Marsh, come on, you're coming with us up to Dublin. And uh he didn't fight, he didn't kick or scream, he just fucking got up, he took it like a man. Right, and but he knew out. the shit was real. Well, yeah, because he owed like thousands of pounds mm-hmm. at the time. That was before the euro changeover, so it would have been pounds, we had pounds at the time. It, actually, when we changed from pounds to euros, Tomo had to change my debt from, okay, so you owe me a thousand pounds, that's equal to twelve hundred (laughs) and fifty six euros we had to like change over what was owed to fucking euros like but but yeah so the boys walked out with with Travis like and then until I seen them walking out with him I felt okay about it you know I was like the guy owes the money we're doing the right thing but then when I seen them walking out with him I was like fuck he might not make it back alive like you know they Mm -hmm. might and then I felt really bad about it and you know, he had saved my life before too. That time I was gonna kill myself. So I, f- I felt terrible about it, you know. Right. Yeah. But uh it was it was out of my control. Like so then later I found out what happened off Tomo. Basically they brought him to the safe house. The safe house was Tomo's own house in Dublin. They yeah. didn't have no, a No real safe. safe house. They didn't really have a safe house. They brought him to his yeah. fucking house, like and uh they brought him up there and and they were trying to scare him and Tommo's uh, brother—he's a really nice fella. He's a gay dude, anyway. Tommo's brother comes in with like a tray full of tea to the boys while they're in the middle, and Tommo's like, "Mush, get out the fuck! You're rolling in the mood, like (laughs) you know." It it sounded funny to me, like. But first of all, Travis was saying, "Oh, my parents don't have any money, you know." And then eventually, uh, Tommo went out to the kitchen. He brought out some trash bags, and he says, "Mush, you pay the fucking money, or you're going into fucking bin bags." And then at that. Travis rang the parents, and they drove up with the money. Uh, I don't know what it was—five or six grand, I think. Plus, each of the kidnappers got five hundred a piece, plus whatever I owed. Like, so they came up with the cash, and uh, Tomo told me they met in like a, a a deserted parking lot. You know, Tomo came and he put one of those scarfs around his around his face, so mm-hmm. so he, so they couldn't see his face. And, Travis's mother had the money and, and she's like, please don't hurt him. And uh, Tama was like, Mush, I don't know nothing about it. I'm just here to pick up the money, you know? And uh, she gave the money. They let him go. That was the end of it. Yeah. So when it comes time for you to
1: make amends for your role in this yeah. whole thing, it creates quite a dilemma for you. Yeah. But yeah. now you've written about it in a book, and even though you're using different names, these people
0: have these are to all know, real people, right. Yeah. These, these are all real people, yeah. But um, yeah, it's not fair to use the real names. Yeah,
1: so that's a tricky one, right? Like how do you make
0: this wrong, right? Yeah, uh, later on like part of sobriety is when, when you're working the steps, you have to make amends to people you've hurt. Like and when I was doing my amends list, he was, he was the top of my list. Like my sponsor was this guy called Bernard. And he says, well, show me your list. And uh, I took out the list, and the top of the list was Kidnap Travis. And, uh, you know, for the amends, you're supposed to run it by your sponsor. So, you know, it might be something like money owed or whatever. So I, I would always try and figure out in my head, w- ahead of time, what the amends might be, you know. And, and uh, so I was thinking, what's the opposite of a kidnapping? I could send him on a lovely vacation. You know, that, that's what I was thinking in my head when I first got sober and I was talking to my sponsor about it. And uh, I told him, I says, hey, do you want me to send him on a vacation? He says, does that man know you're involved in the kidnapping? I says, no. He says, well, don't fucking tell him. He says, it's probably the worst experience of the man's life. Just don't fucking kidnap anyone again. And that was the end. It was, you just let me to leave the guy alone. Just don't ever mm-hmm. do that kind of stuff again.
1: But now at some point, he might come across the book
0: well, I'd, I'd make a nice So you might have to, to reopen that case. Yeah, Travis, if you're out there, let me know what I can do. Right, there might be a vacation coming. <laughs> there your might be a vacation days. in yeah. your future. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> well, at some point you pull this geographic and move to San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. Thinking like, oh, if I just get out of Dodge,
0: yeah, all will be rainbows. Yeah, make a long story sh- very short. Uh, I thought that Ireland was the problem. Maybe if I got out of Ireland, that my fortunes would change. And uh, I got married really young. My, my ex-wife was from San Francisco, and that's, that's how I ended up moving there when I was twenty-two. I became a dad, and I, I tried to be good. Really, at the start when I got there, and I was good for a few years, but. Uh, Eventually things, (laughs) I couldn't keep myself. Well, you brought yourself with you. Exactly, yeah, Yeah. Nothing. the only thing that changed was the location, I didn't change.
1: Right, I mean, there's so many stories and incidents that you have, uh, but the one thing that I I do wanna (laughs) hear from you about is how you got involved with this Asian gang.
0: Hmm. I didn't even realize that was funny till I started working with John. You know, I told him I was in this Asian gang he was like, You were in an Asian gang? I'm like, Yeah. And he goes, But you're not Asian. I was like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm not. He's like, Well, what were you doing with the Asian gang? I was like, Well, they had the best cocaine. You know, uh, around recession time, there was no more work for a carpenter. And I was broke. And I had a bad enough cocaine habit. So I started dealing again because I couldn't afford to just be a user anymore. And I started off getting this like crappy Coke from this Irish guy I knew, this little Irish guy. His nickname was The Pony. So The Pony was giving me this crappy Coke for 800 bucks an ounce. And it wasn't that strong. And I don't know if you know anything about drug dealing. It's way easier to sell stuff that's strong than not. So I, I was selling this crappy Coke that I got off The Pony. And, uh, and I used to get my own Coke off these Asian guys. Mm-hmm. They were like, organized crime like professional dudes and they had really really strong coke it was it was extra money per gram but it was like pure like uncut fish scale the shiny rocky stuff the good stuff so i was getting my own stuff off them for for whatever a couple of years and like i I, I was finding it hard to sell the shitty coke and then i i came up with with the idea why don't i ask these guys to buy the bulk off them you know and uh the main guy, we'll call him Ronald. I says to Ronald one day, I says, hey, could I start getting ounces off you guys? And he knew me for a while at this point. And he goes, uh, you can get it under one condition. And I'm like, what's that? He says, if you start getting it off us, you're not allowed to get it off anybody else. I'm like, why? He says, because we have really good shit. And if you're working with us, and then and then you stop working with us, and then you start selling crap... Then it'll ruin our reputation. So I was like, "Fuck, that's a bit of a commitment." But uh, but they had the best coke around, so I was like, "Okay." And then he says, "There's one other thing: if you ever rat on us, we'll kill your whole family." Hmm. And uh, I was like, "Fuck!" Like, well, I never ratted on anybody before. I wasn't going to start now. So I was like, "Yeah, I can, I can, <laughs> I, can like, I can." that's not
1: a problem. Yeah, I was like. But it, you were the. Old, I mean, were you? How, how did you, I guess you had established some level of trust, but like how do you ingratiate yourself into that community of people? I mean, you were, there couldn't have been any other non-Asian well, here, people I'll, working I'll, with I'll, that I'll, gang. I'll,
0: I'll tell you now, right? So just to finish how I, was, how I joined those guys. Um, so, so he says, if you ever ran on us, we'll kill your whole family. And I said, okay, I won't run on you. And he goes, if you're ever arrested, just keep your mouth shut and a lawyer will be provided for you. That's what he told me. And he said, and the other good thing about working with us, if anybody fucks with you, we'll be up there with machine guns. I was like, fuck, okay, this is really serious. So that was me in with them. But before that, I I had got coke off other people as well. But in San Francisco, might be the same now, I don't know. But there's a few Asian gangs that supply all the Irish people with coke. There's a chick, a Vietnamese chick. I won't tell you what her name is, but... She's one of the big, big suppliers there. And, and, and then there was my guys, uh, Ronald and uh, Leroy. Leroy was kind of like off-the-boat Asian dude. He like, never wore any shoes or socks when he was driving. you know. And then there was another guy called Johnny Go Anywhere. He was uh, another Asian taxi driver. He had these business cards that said, Johnny Taxi, Go Anywhere. So his nickname was Johnny Go Anywhere. But uh, Johnny got killed around 2007, 2008... Yeah, somebody called him to go somewhere and he pulled up in the sunset and they shot him in the head and his car drove into a fucking house and exploded. Oh. But uh, yeah, the, the word was that the chick, the other rival killed him, but I heard it was Chinese moneylenders, but, but yeah, long story short, there's a lot of Asian gangs up there. Yeah,
1: so you start working with this Asian gang, you're dealing, you're married, you got a girlfriend. You're out all night. Like it seems pretty insane. Then you have this accident on a construction site that breaks your back. Like there's a lot of chaos. That's well, I got coming the, into I, your life.
0: I had the accident after I got sober. <laughs> oh, that happened after. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. I was yeah. I was all good while I was using and you uh-huh. know things. Well, I wasn't all good, but yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, I was working with these Asian guys for a while and and uh, selling coke and I was selling Viagra as well. Um, yeah, there's a thing, I don't know if any of you Coke heads out there, there's a thing where if you take too much Coke, you get this thing called Coke dick. So if you have Viagra with you, you can avoid that, that situation. Right, you know? <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah, so, so I used to sell the little, the little blue pills as well. That was, that was part of my thing. But um, yeah, things got really crazy around 2009. Um, but walk,
1: walk me up into the bottom.
0: Yeah, this is and coming the to the bottom. Point, yeah. yeah, yeah, this is coming to the bottom. Um, so, let's just say somebody hurted somebody I, I really cared about, and and uh, and I decided they'd have to be be killed, right? And um, so I went about hiring a hitman to 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 kill this guy. And uh, first, I tried my gang. I asked Ronald, would they do it for a price? And he said that they would only kill somebody who had fucked us over in business. He wouldn't kill anybody for personal reasons. And he told me he had killed a bunch of people when he was younger. And he told me that they they haunted him, you know. So so he's, he was trying to talk me out about it. I didn't want to, or he didn't want to do it. And then I knew this Norteno guy, Mexican mafia fella called Joe. And uh, I asked Joe would he do it, and Joe said he'd do it for 5,000. I only had 2,000. <laughs> so I says, Joel, I'll give you two. I, I only have 2,000. He's like, no, no, that's not enough money. So then I decided I was going to rob this bar in San Francisco. So there used to be, it's gone now, but it, it was a money laundering operation for the Irish terrorists. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, this just sounds like such a good plan. <laughs> well, it, it, cocaine gave me these kind of good yeah. ideas, or, you know.
1: I mean, it's, it's a comedy of errors, like out of a Coen brothers movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the sad thing is it's fucking true. Like, um, So basically this place would have a half million dollars behind the bar every Friday. So if you had a check and if you were, say if you had problems with the IRS or child support or you were an illegal immigrant, you could bring your check into the bar, and they'd cash the check for you, and give you give you cash for it, and you tip the barman. That's that's how how the thing worked. And I knew somebody who worked there, and I said, uh, "Well, I knew it could be robbed, but it was like a two man job. Like one person would have to watch the customers, and the other person could go in and get the money." And uh, so I was like trying to get some of the guys I, I hung around with to do it, but they were all too scared and. Then I asked the girlfriend to do it with me, and she was scared too. And uh, we ended up not being able to do it. And then I get a call from Joe. Joe got a DUI, so he badly needed the money. He says, I'll kill the guy for 2000 Just You have to get the gun. So uh, $2,000 is not a lot of money, so he's not spending that fucking money on, on getting the gun. Right. So I had to pr- provide the gun for him. And I had my own gun, but it was a legal one and you can't, if you have a registered gun, you can't kill somebody with that because it can be traced, do sure. you? So I hit up this guy, Silva, another fellow I knew, um, asked him if he could give me a gun. And uh, he said, yeah, come to the mission. And before this, I had been on like a really bad bender. Uh, it was around Burning Man time, and... This undertaker from Ireland was going to Burning Man and he wanted a half ounce of Coke. So I got, I got an ounce, gave him half the ounce, and the other half went up my nose. So I was awake for a few days and, and uh, I drove down to the mission to meet Silva. And I was like sleepwalking around the place, sweaty, fucking on edge, you know. And when I got there, he saw how bad I was and he's like, I'm not giving this fool a gun, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Right. He didn't say that to me, but I know that's what he was thinking. So, so uh, I ended up not not getting the gun off him. So I'm driving back to my house, uh, out by the beach, and fucking cops start following me. Um, up, I was driving up Fulton, and, and the cops followed me. And I'm all sweaty, and I have an ounce in the glove compartment, and I have a 22 under the seat. So I'm I'm sitting in a jail sentence if they catch me. Yeah. So they fucking followed me and then the, the, the lights come on and the siren and I'm like, fuck, I'm nearly having a heart attack. And then they turned around and went back the way they came. They must've got a call on the fucking, on the radio. And I nearly had a heart attack. My, my heart was coming through my chest. So I pulled over I smoked like fucking five cigarettes. And I was like, I'm not going to jail for killing this fool. And, uh, and I, decided, I decided I would go to Australia. Right. Instead.
1: <laughs> As one would. Yeah. Right? So,
0: so, yeah, I figured I was like, fuck it. Yeah. I, I, I thought San Francisco's the problem. I need to get the fuck out of here. Right. I, like there was a recession in America, but Australia was booming. There was loads of Irish going to Australia. So I decided to go to Australia. Fucking hopped on a, on a plane. To well, make a long story short, I, I, I hopped on a plane on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, and I went to Australia. I was never going to come back. I was like, fuck America, you know? <laughs>
1: yeah. And you went with your girlfriend.
0: <laughs> yeah. I took and the your girlfriend. wife
1: was at home in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, the wife, like, the insanity level is yeah, through the roof on all of this.
0: Different level. Like, and the other thing was, I didn't even want the girlfriend to come with me because, like, um, this was towards the end of 2009. And I was, like, really suicidal. But I thought if I could get out of America, I wouldn't do it mm-hmm. like, and I, I was staying at the girlfriend's house and I was, I was so fucking high and, and, uh, and I just wanted to book my flights to Australia, you could get a visa online, it was really easy like, I just wanted to book my flights and get the fuck out of there and uh, she, she, she was an accountant right, the girlfriend was, and, and so she wanted to give two weeks notice. Uh, <laughs> she wanted to give two weeks notice before, before we leave and I was like no no I can go now and you can meet me over there I can't wait two weeks I was on dad's door like, and, uh, and I got on the computer in her house to fucking book my tickets for Australia and she turned the internet off in the house uh-huh. and I was like fuck <laughs> I'm trapped in Daly City and, uh, and she came back in and I was high as a kite and she told me the raccoons had eaten the cables outside, and that's why the internet was mm-hmm. off and i I was high, but I wasn't that fucking high. <laughs> I knew that she turned the fucking internet off because uh she wanted me to wait, so i I was stuck there, and I was like so wasted I couldn't go to like an internet cafe or something like that i would know what would have called the police I was so bad like so I was stuck there, and I was like mad at her for keeping me there, you know um. In the end, she she eventually turned on the fucking internet and everything and we both left on New Year's Eve. And I was thinking, I'm finished with this, this chick as soon as we get to Australia. <laughs> so,
1: right, and you go to Australia, it's a disaster. Yeah. Killer to post.
0: More of the same shit, lots of fighting, fist fights, lots of visits to the whorehouse, lots of drinking. It was crazy in Australia too, like, yeah. <laughs> so where so, do you where do you meet
1: your maker and finally realize like i can't I, so i, I can't stayed in australia for
0: like three or four months and i missed the kids as well so i decided to come back to america and then when i came you back have two kids at this point yeah two kids yeah and and um yeah and I, I i came back and i was trying to be sober and and in the end i just became suicidal i was i was gonna gonna shoot myself again and uh, You know, even though I was a drug addict, I was a pretty good carpenter. I I could always get work. And there's a bunch of Irish guys in San Francisco who were sober. And they go to the 12-step meetings and they don't make any secret of it. And I I ended up working with some of these guys. And one of them was a guy called Bernard, or Americans would say Bernard. Yeah. But uh, Irish call him Bernard. So Bernard, he knew I had a problem. And we used to work together. And I, I I would always be curious about the meetings. I would like ask him questions. and shit. What goes on at these meetings? And uh, he, did, he didn't want to tell me a whole lot. But he just gave me his number. And he says, if you ever want to get sober, give me a call. So I says, right. And uh, for some reason that time I was suicidal again. I decided to give him a call. And uh, because I had already tried to kill myself so many times. And it you know, wasn't working out. And I tried to do it on my own. Like I tried to tried to stop drinking and I, it, my record was three months, mm-hmm. like off everything. And, yeah, and, and, and but
1: every good alcoholic has that experience of yeah. a couple months off, which just fuels that idea that you can do it yourself.
0: Yeah, like the game is to prove you're not an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So like I could stay sober for three months. So that proves I'm not an alcoholic, mm-hmm. let's drink. <laughs> you know, by the end of the three months, I would be bursting for a drink. And then there was other rules, like uh, alcoholics drink in the house. I knew that, so I never drank in the house. I was like, oh, that's alcoholic shit. So I'd always <laughs> drink at the bar. And uh, I knew alcoholics drank in the morning, so I never drank in the morning. I suffered all those hangovers for all those years. And then when I came to the meetings, people were like, oh, yeah, I used to drink in the morning to help me feel better. And I was like, fuck, I never did that. <laughs> I suffered all these hangovers for all these years. So it led me to this point where... where um, what made me call Bernard, um, I, was, I was doing this job out in the East Bay, and, and I had just tried to kill myself a few weeks beforehand, and I knew I didn't want to drink again, and I would be driving home from work, and I could feel something was pulling me to go to the bar, because I didn't drink at home, drank at the bar, and, and this something that was in me was pulling me to go to the bar, and, and I was able to observe it, whereas it had been there all along, but but it was in the background, but I could, I could feel there's some shit that's fucking not me that makes, wants me want to drink. So uh, I called up Bernard, and I says, well, Richie, how are you doing? I says, uh, Bernard, I have a problem with the drinking and the drugs. Uh, can you bring me to a meeting? And he goes, I'll pick you up this evening. So he came and he picked me up, and, and that's, that was Labor Day 2010. Right. That's where that I started.
1: That was it. <laughs> the guy becomes your sponsor, not immediately, but, you know, he's your Eskimo. He brings you into this whole other world and hence begins the slog into sobriety.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really weird. Like, um, I didn't know a whole lot about sobriety. Like, in Ireland, it's kind of, at least when I was growing up, it was more underground, like, you, you know, you wouldn't know shit about it. Like, mm. Even now, what, the last few years. So, it must
1: be weird in LA where just everybody's talking about it like yeah. a badge of honor.
0: like people in restaurants would be like fucking working the steps in, the, in a restaurant with their sponsor. That was so weird to me. Like, like back home, it's like so secret. You know, when you're there, you'd be saying, oh, he's a member. It's like Fight Club or some shit back home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, cause uh-huh. In Ireland, you have to be really bad to go to AA, like, because like, when I first got sober, I started coming home and, and a lot of my old drinking buddies like Tits and the boys like that, I they, I go to the pub to meet them, but I'll I be like, uh, well, what are you drinking? I'm like, a Coke. No, oh, you're not drinking. I'm like, no, I'm an alcoholic. Because goes, oh, you're not a fucking alcoholic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because yeah. if I'm an alcoholic, right. they it could be. Yeah, one. they don't want to have to
1: look at their own behavior.
0: Exactly, yeah, yeah. So I think oh. I think to hit that that grade of of maybe surrender in Ireland, you probably have to be a lot lot worse than, than over here, you know? Mm.
1: Right, so he brings you to meetings in San Francisco, this becomes like your thing, man. I mean, what's interesting is that you didn't
0: relapse. No, I was very fortunate, but it was weird though, uh, Rich. It wasn't, like I never relapsed, but I was at a point where I was willing to fucking do whatever was suggested right. to me, at least on, on face value.
1: Yeah, we'll talk about the willingness piece. That's, that's something I talk about all the time, like that idea that you can't, you can't compel somebody to get sober. Like it has to be this internally driven desire, a true willingness where you're ready and prepared to do whatever it takes.
0: Yeah, and I didn't even really, at the start, I, I didn't even really think it would necessarily work for me. You know, Um, because as I said before, I knew I had a problem with the sauce and the cocaine, but I I thought like maybe I have some kind of mental problems. Like maybe I'm fucking depressed or manic depressant or bipolar or some shit. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I really did did, because I didn't understand uh, the mental traits of somebody who has a problem like this, you know. And and, and I, I knew that alcoholics drank every day, but I didn't drink every day. I was like, I was a a binge drinker. Like, sometimes I could stay sober for a couple of weeks, but then I would just drink to extreme when I did. So, so my understanding was that I'm probably not an alcoholic, you know, until I came there. And then when I came to the first meeting, I was really nervous, dude. Like, like. So, all the Irish know each other in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. That's where it was, and I knew that the Irish Center had meetings, right? I didn't want to go to the Irish center.
1: Right, because it'll, it'll get leaked out. Yeah, find it's, it's right, like, and oh, back Richie to Stevens comment. has a problem. Yeah, like,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. So, like, I didn't mind them knowing I was a drug dealer, piece of shit, or anything like that. This is how warped my thinking was at the time. I didn't mind them knowing that I was a drug dealer or that I was a bad guy, but I didn't want them to think I had a problem. So, Bernard picked me up that day, and uh, there was another guy with him, Niall. I'd never met him before, but the two guys were in the front, and I was in the back, and I was really nervous because I didn't want the fucking Irish people to know, and this guy, Niall, was Irish too, who was in the car with me, like, and I was so fucking nervous, dude. I, I says, uh, where are we going? And Bernard says, we're going to the Irish Centre. I'm like, fuck. And, and the car was already moving, so I, I was like, I have to go to the fucking Irish Centre now, you know, and they, they knew I was really nervous, you know, and it was quiet, in the car, and Bernard turns around, he says, did you bring your passport? I said, what? Did you bring your passport? I was like, no. I thought it was like a setup with the cops to be waiting for me to uh-huh. have my passport to deport me. <laughs> I says, no, why? And, he, and then he started laughing. He had this fucking Santa Claus laugh, <laughs> like this. And he, but he was just breaking my balls, like, you know, uh, and and that kind of took the the edge off. Like they were kind of making fun of me because they knew I was nervous. Mm. You know, he's just, just fucking with me. So it, it kind of broke the ice a little bit. We got up to the Irish Centre. parked the car, and I and I, I was like looking around, fucking make sure nobody saw me going in or anything like that, you know. It was in the no Richie Stevens type of fucking problem. Yeah, Yeah. and and this guy stopped me at the door like uh, a northern fella called Steven. He says, well, how are you? Are you new? I was thinking, how the fuck does he know I'm new? (laughs) You know, but the thing is, if you ever go to the meetings, of course they know if you're new, because the same fucking people go every week. And if you're new, you probably look like shit as well. So I I couldn't have been looking too hot after the session I had been on. So I was like, yeah, I am new. He goes, do you think you have a problem with drinking? I says, yeah. He says, what makes you say that? I says, well, I just tried to kill myself a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and he goes, he goes. That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and then, and in, in I went and I sat down, and it was a fucking, it was a men-only meeting on a Friday night, and there was a good few Irish lads there, you know, like people like me, construction workers, and and I came in, I sat down, and you know, I I knew that, like, from whatever I had seen on TV or any really, of this shit. I thought if you come to a fucking meeting, you have to tell everybody your story, or you have to talk in front of a group, and like that's that scared the shit out of me. You know, I could go around carrying a gun and 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 deal with the people I was dealing with. That didn't scare me, but being honest in front of a group yeah. of uh, of other drunks about my embarrassing shit, that scared the shit out of me. So I was I was like intent on not fucking telling anybody anything sit at the back you know keep to myself and uh so i sat down in the back and and uh everybody was was shaking my hand and saying hello and i was just trying to keep a low pro- profile and uh at the start of the meeting the guy says uh, have we any newcomers here tonight and everybody like turns around and looks at me like and uh I, I would have like pretend fucking or give a fake name or something like that and just leave but Bernard and Niall already knew who I was so they put up the hand and, and uh, I was like I'm Richie I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict and I had never I don't think I had ever admitted that before mm-hmm. in a group like and uh, and I couldn't believe it they all fucking clapped and uh, I was like wow do you people know who I am like the things I have done and but uh, didn't give a fuck some of them did but uh, they didn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. All they talk, all they cared about was there's a dude here who has a problem, and you know we're gonna help him out for fun and for free. And, and it really it, I couldn't believe they were clapping for me. They uh, they're really like not what I was expecting, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: So you say that out loud for the first time. But at what point did you believe that about yourself? Like prior to that. Because you thought it was some other mental defect or you were making rationalizations or excuses for yourself. But deep down when your head hit the pillow, you knew like you knew you were an alcoholic. When I started drinking
0: at the age of 15 or 16, I knew I had a problem back then, but- You push it way down. Yeah, like I remember one time going to the doctor you know when you go to the doctor's office and there's a bunch of leaflets and shit like that sitting around and it's, it's in Ireland, same as here, you would have a bunch of leaflets and shit in the doctor's office. I remember when I was a kid, like a teenager, I saw one of these leaflets and it was uh, an alcoholic questionnaire. I think it's called yeah. the 20 questions. I think yeah, that's yeah. what it's called. So I remember as a kid fucking opening this shit up when I was at the doctor's office and I had just discovered drinking at this time and I'm reading through the questions Do you ever do things you regret while you're drinking? who doesn't? Do you ever lie about your drinking? Of course. (laughs) You know, have you ever blacked out? It happens to everybody. And I remember back then when I had done the questionnaire, I probably got 16 or 17 out of 20. Mm -hmm. And if you ever do that questionnaire, they they say one yes means you might be an alcoholic. Two yeses mean you're probably an alcoholic. Three or more, you are definitely an alcoholic. Yeah. So I saw it in black and white when I was a fucking teenager, right. but, I, but I thought it was a joke, you know. I was like, everybody drinks in Ireland, you know. It's like, it's in our culture, it's in our blood, like, you know. So, so I knew I had a problem from the start, but, but when you're doing the steps, right, you're li- it's admitted you're powerless over drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol and your life is unmanageable. So, I knew I was powerless from a teenager, but I thought my life was manageable. Mm-hmm. If if you looked on from the outside looking in, you'd say, this guy's a fucking a fiend, like, you know, but but until the very end, I probably hadn't admit, admitted that second part that my life was right. unmanageable.
1: Right, and that's the the baffling thing because any outside observer would say, this is nothing but chaos and insanity, but, your lived experience was i this is under control i'm managing this all right
0: yeah in my own head yeah you know but but obviously not in everybody else's head <laughs> no <laughs> the man. people i was working with you know the dolls i was seeing my wife obviously but
1: <laughs> yeah we're going to get to the wife but first uh you know one of the things i appreciate appreciated about the book is your candor around the character defect piece because there is this idea that when you get sober like it's just about getting rid of the drugs and alcohol and then all my problems are going to go away mm. and what you don't realize is that then you know you have all of these emotions that come to the surface that become very unmanageable until you learn these new tools for how to work through them and in your case like a lot of it goes back to the anger
0: mm-hmm. yeah like Basically when you when you're getting sober right it's really difficult when when they take away your medicine because the booze is your medicine if you're an alcoholic booze is what you use to feel good or to deal with all your problems for me like anytime I had any kind of a feeling The impulse was to to drink or get high. Like, if I was happy about something, yeah, let's celebrate. If you're sad about something, drown your sorrows. If you're angry about something, Mm -hmm. need a drink to calm you down. It was literally my solution for everything, even boredom. Fuck, I've nothing to do. Let's go to the bar. So if you have a problem with drinking and drugs, like that's your life. And then to suddenly have your your comfort taken away, you're raw as fuck, like, you know. So, so um, when when someone's newly sober, they're definitely really irritable. And like you were saying with the, the defects of character, there's no such thing as a perfect person. I still have defects of character, obviously. But um, they're more obvious when the booze is gone and your head is clear and you have to get real about what these... What these problems you have? Mm-hmm. Like for me, um, I would say, yeah, quick to anger was one. You know, uh, I probably got as many beatings as I gave. You know, but violence was uh, was a way to solve problems. I never hit my misses or my kids or anything like that. But other dudes, like you know, and and uh, that's not how you behave. Like. When I came to the meetings, they says it's a spiritual program, and I said, "What the fuck is spiritual?" And I have a college education, but I never I never used the word spiritual. It wasn't in my vocabulary. Like I was like, "What? What does that mean? Do we all fucking sit around and do yoga or, or become vegan uh-huh. or what the fuck is that?" <laughs> you know, the, the, that's what I was. That's what I thought originally. Maybe, Man, was not, not, <laughs> not me, but but uh, but yeah, so so I I I I heard that like you hear these people at the meetings and be like, yeah, it's a spiritual program. This is what the fuck is spiritual? And uh, the best definition I got uh, an old priest I talked to at one of the meetings. He said spirituality is freedom from the bondage of self. So yeah. I had bondage of self. That's why I was drinking and doing all these drugs, like. I was like, okay, that sounds cool. The the booze and the coke used to be my spirituality. How the fuck do I how do how do I feel good now without that stuff? And they said it's very simple. You just uh you just you just do whatever your sponsor suggests. Uh you try to be honest, you try to help other people instead of just thinking about yourself. And you do other shit like praying and meditating if you want to do that kind of stuff. Like I didn't do that kind of stuff at the beginning, but uh, yeah, I slowly learned the tools to not have to drink and get high anymore. And it was a learning process and slowly my feelings started to become more normal. The highs weren't so high, the lows weren't so low, Mm -hmm. you know?
1: Right, and there's that fear that comes with that Because there is an addiction to those highs and lows on Mm -hmm. some level. Like, what is my life going to be like if I'm just flatlining all the time? Mm -hmm. You know, I can't live that way. Yeah, it's going to be boring. It's going to be intolerable.
0: Yeah, I thought before I actually decided to get sober. Like when I decided to get sober, there was no more options. I was like, yeah, it's either do this or die. But before that, the concept of like getting sober, maybe even going to meetings or something like that, I thought it would be like the most boring shit ever. I thought it would be like a bunch of people fucking hanging out in a room, trying not to drink, you know, like kind of sad and pathetic. But it it turned out to be the exact opposite for me. Um, The people I've met in, in, in recovery are the most interesting people, the people who were like me. So fucked up that they couldn't do it anymore, you know. And and there was a lot of fun around it, and and I learned how to do normal things sober. Like, there's this thing that they do. Another new word for me was fellowship. <laughs> so, like, what the fuck is fellowship? Um, Bernard said to me one day when I was new at the meeting. So I was just, I was just getting like. I was just getting stuck in at the start. He says, we're going to meet for coffee. Meet me at the coffee shop. I says, go for coffee? What the fuck are we going to do there? And he goes, we're going to talk and drink coffee. <laughs> 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 uh, and uh, and I was like, that was weird to me as well. Because uh-huh. since I was a kid, when you're in a social fucking surrounding, you want to have a beer. and, and it, But it was a catch-22 with me. Like, before I got sober if I was in a social setting, some shit like this where I didn't really know the people and, and I might feel nervous, I'd want a beer just to feel okay. And, and then the problem was, once I started drinking the beer, I drink too much beer and then I started making a fool of myself. So it was, even before, when I was drinking, it was a no-win situation. So we had to like, so so I remember the first time we went to the coffee shop and we were drinking coffee and just chatting. It was like, it was weird. Like, But but uh, I got used to it fairly quick because, uh um there was something about being around other people who were the same as me who had the same problem as me it, i found to have a connection to other people who have my problem there's something about talking to another fucking drunk or another addict that uh, they understand you you mm-hmm. know so and and, and I, I i used to trip out so much uh about it at the start. I'm like, oh, how am I never gonna drink again? Fucking what if my parents die or, or, or what if my, my daughter gets married in twenty years and I'm and I'm at her wedding, will I not be able to have a glass of champagne or whatever? And uh Bernard he says to me says, never mind that shit. He says, we, we do it one day at a time. So today you don't feel like drinking. Maybe tomorrow you won't either. Don't worry about fucking twenty years time. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah man those annoying adages that are so true
0: yeah, yeah yeah there was a bunch of them like fucking easy does it that was, that was an important one for me too because everything <laughs> was such a big deal when i got sober like oh god the wife annoyed me or some of the boys at work be like fucking greek tragedy like you yeah. know they'd say easy does it yeah that means just take it easy don't worry about that shit and uh
1: The other thing is like the levity, right? You talk about in the book, like the first time that you kind of really shared your whole story in a group setting and the fear around that. But in that community, like it's so welcomed, right? Like that level of, because it takes courage to be vulnerable on that level, right? But tapping into that vulnerability becomes part of the healing process. And we can laugh at this stuff that we've done and that has happened in the past, even though we're also appreciating the heaviness of it and kind of where it took us. And that's like a salve in the wound, right? To sit and listen to other people's version of your story, how they got through it and the kind of ownership, like this is what happened. I'm not ashamed to talk about it because I've done all of this work to repair my relationships, make peace with my past, overcome those resentments and and everything like that. That is really like when someone walks into the room and can share as openly as you just have about all these things that you've done. Like, I think that's that's something that helps us feel more connected to other people.
0: Yeah, like for me, it didn't come easy to me. Like, you know, I'm nearly 12 years sober now, so I've told my story fucking at least 50 times to groups of people, but um, it was very difficult for me to share at the start because most people who were in recovery haven't done the things I did, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I think the first person I heard speaking who had a similar story to me was was a hell's angel, Mm -hmm. you know? And I remember when I heard his story and it actually gave me a kind of a sense of relief that like, because I always feel like I'm the worst person in the room, like... And, you know, I am ashamed of some of the things I've done. Like, you can't be proud of some of this shit. But the bottom line is it happened and and uh, it was at a time in my life where I was powerless over something. You know, I I wouldn't have made those kind of decisions today like how I am. And I'm not proud of, like, a lot of the stuff I've done, but, but it, it happened, like, yeah. you know, it's the truth. And um, I was most worried about... Um, you know what if I tell these people about this shit that I've done and they think I'm a fucking asshole like I feel like I am you know um, what if they don't want to know me like and and uh, it, like ex- expecting judgment from people and of course some people are not going to judge you. it's not like the things I have done aren't things to be proud of like I'm lucky I'm not dead or in jail mm-hmm. for the things that I have done. But when when I'm asked to share at a group, I do, because it might help somebody else who like, maybe feels like they're the biggest piece of shit in the room too, yeah. like, or maybe they have something that, that they have done that they're not proud of, you know? How have you stayed plugged in
1: after almost 12 years? Because you really embrace the program and you're an ambassador, you know, in a, in a very service forward way to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, so, I had a bit of bad luck at the end of my first year, and um, so after I got sober, I turned my back on criminal lifestyle completely out of it, no more drug dealing or any of that kind of stuff, and, uh, and, and I tried to s- switch my life around and fucking get everything back on track. I tried to fix my marriage, um, tried to become a productive member of society, and uh, I wanted to be a contractor you know, um, construction business. Because I was a carpenter. Mm-hmm. I had the skills and experience, even though I was high as a kite a lot of the time I had been doing it. And uh, so I, I took the test to get my contractor license, and that that's what my plan was. I'm going to build houses for the next fucking 30 years. That's where I thought my life was going to go. That's what my plan was. And then I got into an accident, construction accident, and I broke my back. A beam fell down and hit me, broke one of my discs, herniated another one. It's permanently damaged. So I had to stop being a carpenter. And uh, it, it it would have been very easy to go back drinking at that time because I was feeling sorry for myself. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I got sober now. Everything should be cool, you know. But, but the thing is, like, whether you're sober or not, sometimes bad things happen, you know. And uh, what got me through that time, it was around the time when when I had just finished my steps in the program and the last step is you, you gotta like help others, work with other people. So I ended up sponsoring some other guys who who uh, were trying to get sober and, and that kept me out of the, the self-pity. Like, um, cause there's something about working with somebody else that it's hard to feel sorry for yourself when you're trying to help somebody else. You know, it's yeah. impossible to do both at the same time. So I started working with others and that got me through uh, a hard part in my life. And, and I ended up doing what I'm doing now, as something I, I enjoy far more. I got into acting and moved down here uh, to LA. But uh, part, of it is, part of it is like if you want, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't say which programs I go to, but I go to multiple you know, there's there's a few things wrong with me. <laughs> so, yeah. so, that just you know, right. uh, So yeah, uh, uh, I still I still try and be a service to others where I can, and and uh, and if it's not broke, don't fix it. So so I keep on doing the same shit that I, I was taught at the beginning. Yeah,
1: there's a bit of a, a comparison to Barry in your story. Like here you are, this guy, you know, who's who's living this gangster lifestyle, and then you become you become an actor. <laughs> And it's hard to not like you know think about Barry when I think about your arc.
0: Mm. I suppose it is like Barry, except mine's a true story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's
1: true. And you weren't you weren't a hitman. Let's be clear. No,
0: I never yeah. killed anybody. Thank God. <laughs> um,
1: but it is it is there is a there's sort of a comedic undertone to that as well.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I don't, you know. You come
1: down here and then you start playing gangsters and heavies and bad guys and, you know, all these procedural shows.
0: Yeah, well, it's kind of like, I didn't choose to do that either. It it chose me. I didn't like start acting and go, I just, I wanna play bad guys. It's like, you look like a bad guy. Right. You'll play bad guys. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how And you've been
1: at it for a while, man. Mm -hmm. You're doing good. Yeah, I've been in a lot of shows and uh, I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The wife and the kids, how's everything going there? Ex-wife
0: now. I'm divorced. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a good relationship with my kids. Uh, uh, They were only toddlers when when I got sober and they're teenagers now. And uh, Yeah, I just try to be a good dad. And they live in San
1: Francisco. Yeah, they live
0: with the the ex-wife. And it it was kind of a weird one because I had to tell them a bit about my story because they had no idea. About how I used to behave, because they were only right. babies when I got sober. So they. But you're, I mean,
1: you, it's it sounds like life for your wife was an absolute living hell.
0: Oh yeah, like I'm sure, I'm sure uh, I was not fucking husband of the year for any of those years, or father of the year, you know. Um, yeah, so obviously she 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 won't have that good of an opinion of me, especially since we got divorced. But. um there's nothing I can do about that, you know. I just try and be a good dad to my kids, but it's kind of weird, like having to tell the kids about some of the stuff I used to do because they didn't know about any of this shit. And I was like, oh, "Well, I wrote this book, and you know, I'm gonna have to tell you some of these stories." So, so. how does
1: your ex-wife feel about the book?
0: You'd have to ask her about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, now we're not close or anything like that, but we we, we co-parent,
1: you mm-hmm. know. And so you go up and visit the kids, or how does that work?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, I get them every month. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so how does the the book come about in this relationship with with John and Dave? Oh, so I mean, the book opens with with them talking about how they met you, and 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 kind of it. It being its own little miracle, because ordinarily they would have, ne- you would just sort of cold emailed them.
0: Yeah, I do. Ordinarily
1: they, they would have never even opened that email.
0: They didn't know me from Adam, so, so basically. And, to, and explain who these guys are. Okay, so John Alt Schuller and Dave Krinsky, they're the co-creators of Silicon Valley and they were showrunners on King of the Hill. They wrote Blades of Glory starring um, Will Ferrell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're successful uh. Yeah, they're writers they're big time showrunners. Hollywood showrunners and yeah. And the way it came about, it was it was a funny thing. Uh so one of my buddies, a guy called Sean, Sean Mann, he's 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 another actor. We moved to LA around the same time. He's a really good guy. And he was he was working on this comedy project and I was helping him do a little bit of producing on it and, and uh you guys want to see it? I think it's on YouTube. It's pretty funny. He did like a, a proof of concept. It's called Roommates. So he says, "See if you can get me some some someone big attached to this, and and uh if you can help me out." So I was just helping Sean out. So I was like, "This is this is a good comedy. It's it's kind of a an out there comedy that that he was he he had created." And so I looked at who were the best comedy people, and at the time Silicon Valley was was one of the top ones. So. I reached out to like a couple of people, the first one was Danny McBride, I got, I, I got Danny McBride's email, I, I emailed him and then his assistant got back and said, we don't accept unsolicited materials mm-hmm. and then I sent it to John and, uh, and John, John responded and he said, this is cool, let's meet. And uh, we met up with John and, and- Right, which
1: is highly, highly unusual. Yeah. That kind that's of shit, not, you know, that's not how things work. That
0: kind of shit yeah. doesn't happen, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, usually if you send unsolicited materials to tell to people- For legal reasons
1: alone, they yeah, won't do it. But other but, than like, who is this guy? Yeah. Like, you're not gonna get the time of day from anybody. Yeah,
0: exactly. But uh, it just turns out that there were really nice guys and, uh, and we ended up meeting up with them, and, and that particular project wasn't a fit for John, but he said, I like you guys, keep sending me stuff. So I sent him another couple of things, and he passed on those, and then I had I had written my original draft of the book, and I sent that to him, and he liked it. And then he, he read like 50 pages of it and, and he says, I like this, but I don't really know where it's going. So then I, I told him about my past and and uh, he was like, let's meet again. Because the first time that we met, he he had no idea I used to be yeah. a gangster or anything like that. I'm not scary in person. I'm, I'm friendly. like. And then we met up again and I told him a couple of yarns and uh, he's like, wow, this is crazy. Do you want a partner on it? And, and I said, okay. And then, uh, so first of all, uh, he has another show coming out i 'm not allowed to say what it is, but basically it 's about somebody who 's an author and then he put a, put us in touch with uh, our book agents, and the book agents read the book and they were like wow this is this is uh, this is pretty crazy, but i don 't know how to sell it and Then John had the idea of rewriting the book in the format of the twelve steps because so it would be shorter and more accessible to to what my story really is and Then we rewrote the book together and um the book is coming out on uh, May 24th, mm-hmm. and uh, it's going to be a TV show as well. So, what's the deal
1: with the TV show? Like, is that a a, a pilot deal or a series deal? And what's the status of development there? Like, because you know, well, we it's one thing. Like, oh, there's going to be a show. There's a long, you know, a lot of things have to happen before something ends up on on the air, right?
0: Well, we took it into um, uh, John's manager before we, we we the book was was done, and he said he said. Uh, he said, you should, get a bu- you should get a book deal first because it's easier to green light. And then we got, we got the book deal and uh, we have a bunch of people who are interested in it right now. Um, we don't know where it's gonna land yet, yeah. but, uh, but uh, I can't really say who's looking at it, but uh, some cool people. It's exciting, man. Yeah. It's yeah. quite an arc. It's when you crazy. look back on the whole thing, mm-hmm.
1: it's, it's pretty miraculous.
0: Yeah, it's kind of unbelievable. Like... Uh, <laughs> Number one, that I'm alive after all this kind of stuff. And yeah, it, it's it's pretty crazy. Do you
1: find that that makes it easier to connect with gratitude and all yeah, of that?
0: Absolutely, like, yeah. you know, um, they told me when I got sober, if, if you stay grateful, you won't ever drink again. So I have a lot of things to be grateful for. And yeah, I have a, I have a crazy life Yeah, today.
1: But it's pretty balanced
0: now. Yeah, yeah. There's the only drama I have is, is on the stage now, thank God, and try and keep it down. Mm-hmm.
1: And meanwhile you're still auditioning and doing that
0: whole doing mm-hmm. that whole deal. You did some movie with Halle Berry, right? And yeah, I did that a few years ago. Uh that was uh that was called Kings and last year I've I, seen that one. Yeah, that was about the Rodney King riots and I did last year I did Days of Our Lives and NCIS and I've done Blue Bloods, Criminal Minds. All the procedures. yeah. <laughs> yeah, all that kind of stuff. I, I've, I've been bad guy of the week a lot of times, huh. yeah.
1: That's cool, man. Well, let's round this out with uh, some words of wisdom for the person out there who's who's still suffering, whether or not they're an alcoholic or a drug addict or just battling with some kind of substance or addiction related issue, how do you communicate to that person, throw them a lifeline and, and kind of, uh, you know, help them figure out a better path forward?
0: Well, I would just say like, no matter how bad you think things are, it can still be fixed. Like I kind of thought that I was just gonna be messed up forever and that I, I didn't think that it would work for me. Um, and and I've seen it working for a lot of people. So all you have to do is ask for help and the help is there if you want to take it. Easier said than done sometimes. Yeah, you have to be fully cooked. You know, the best advice I ever got when I was out and about, one of those sober guys, I was working with him and I was came in really hungover, like and uh he says, Why do you do this to yourself? And I looked at him and I was like, do You think I'm an alcoholic? He says, Of course you're a fucking alcoholic. <laughs> and I was like, Why? He's like, You're fucking, you're doing Coke with hookers in, in motels. Like, fucking non alcoholics don't do that shit. <laughs> and then I was like, Well, do you think I should go to the meetings? He goes, No, not yet. He says, Keep on doing it until you can't do it anymore. If you're not ready, it won't work. Mm-hmm. He said, you have to research. Yeah. He said, he says, keep going until you're cooked and then you'll know when you can't do it anymore. Then you go.
1: Yeah. If you're ready, you're ready. It's all about willingness. Yeah. If you can summon that willingness and, and, and do the thing like yourself, um, I've seen so many lives change and transform. So it is possible. And I think the real inspirational piece in your story relates to that arc. Like, honestly, your story is so insane. So if you could figure this out and get sober, like I think it, it, it provides a lot of hope to a well, lot
0: of people. I didn't figure it out on my own either. Like really, I owe my life to that guy Bernard who who brought me to my to who you, who you, the you? The book is dedicated to him. Yeah, he saved my life. Like mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't be alive only How's for that How's he doing amount. now? He's good. He's over in Canada, and he's married, and he has a little baby. And he's, is he still your sponsor? No, no. I have a new one now. But but uh, yeah, because when he moved home, I got I got a local guy. But no, we still we still keep in touch. And uh, yeah, I owe him a lot.
1: Yeah, good man. Well, I'm super proud of you. I've had the privilege of of bearing witness to uh, part of this arc. I remember when you were telling stories about San Francisco, like way back in the day, and you've, you've come a long way, my friend. So I'm excited for this book to come out and for everybody to you know, get a taste of 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 what your life was all about. And I'm excited for the possibility of this new TV show. And I feel like this is a inflection point in your life. And I would just encourage you to continue to tell your story and to do it with that, Level of humility and vulnerability that you, that you did today, because I think it's 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 really powerful, and I think it has the potential to help a lot of a lot of people.
0: Thanks a million for yeah. having me, Rich. If any of you guys haven't heard Rich before, I would subscribe and like this podcast. And <laughs> thanks very much for having me on. And, yeah, man. And, and uh, yeah, if you guys want to learn some more about me, you can see my my shit on IMDb. It's Richie Stevens. I'm on Instagram, Richie Actor. And the book is coming out on uh, May 24th, 2022. It's on Amazon, Simon & Schuster, Barnes & Noble, and Audible. All the places, Uh, man.
1: So Audible, I wanted to ask final thing, um, obviously you read the book, right? Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. And you're this master of accents. We got to hear a bunch today. I didn't realize there were so many versions of an Irish accent, but there are. Can you um, understand do you them all? do all the voices, <laughs> like do. the different voices for the different characters in the book? Do, That's a yeah. reason to get it on Audible right there. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, <laughs> I hope you guys understand. Yeah.
1: Them. <laughs> no, it's good, man. Mm. Um, cool, the book is The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety, My Life in 12 Steps. Always a pleasure to see you and... Uh, I look forward to trudging this road alongside you, my friend. Thanks, Rich. All right, peace out. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com, where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davy Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Jessica Miranda, Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon, peace plants. Namaste.